Welcome back to Toy Fix Podcast with Wes and Andy. And this is episode two, where we're going through the bad guys and the other stuff in wave one. Yes, um, very exciting. Thanks for coming back. We don't have to really dive down into the history and context quite as much. I mean, episode one would be a good thing for you guys to start with to get all of that. But I think maybe it's worth it. I mean, I think we could pretty much assume everyone has listened to it. Like both, really? I, I mean, the people who are listening to this, but also just in general, I think that our distribution is going to be pretty extensive, almost universal. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I guess we should start with alphabetical order because it goes up in uh, level of importance and strength. Exactly. Well, and I, I, it's easy to remember who should come first because he has a giant A on his belt buckle. Yes, we're talking about Apocalypse. I am as far beyond mutants as they are beyond you. I am eternal. Apocalypse is the evil mutant who has used his sinister genius and mutant ability to turn himself into a merciless one-man army. Apocalypse is incredibly strong, able to change his size at will, and has created for himself a weapon system designed to destroy the X-Men. Apocalypse is the most frightening evil mutant on Earth when he turns himself into a giant, puts on this deadly arsenal, and attacks. And I'm not always the best at reading these, but I will say that that clunky ending is from the card back, not from my performance of it. It was not delivery. It was all structure. Yeah, um, thank goodness he can grow to larger sizes, because if he weren't a giant, he really wouldn't be the most frightening evil mutant on Earth. (laughs) I think that even the vision of Apocalypse, this wave, is interesting. Apocalypse had never appeared ages of the Uncanny X-Men comic book. He was solely an X-Factor villain. He would eventually show up in X-Men, but he wouldn't actually become a major antagonist for the X-Men for some time. The the X-Men of the main reality don't end up actually fighting Apocalypse till the late 90s in the 12 storyline. Oh gosh, what a lovely storyline too. So good, classic, instant classic. It's weird to think about him as a specifically X-Factor villain, but like that 80s X-Factor team really is, they are my X-Men. Well, they were the original X-Men, so you could be forgiven for forgetting that they were technically a team. Apocalypse was built up over time to be one of the the biggest villains in the X-Men rogues gallery. The reason why the X-Men seldom fight him directly is because he's a villain who is so dangerous, who is so powerful that they kind of don't stand a chance against him. It's interesting to think that in 91, uh, he was relegated to one of the spinoff titles. Well, I mean, obviously there are not many villains to choose from when making a toy line for the X-Men, and they were already scraping the bottom of the barrel by choosing someone from X-Men. Indeed. So I want to start by talking about the accessory, which is the power staff, or... I guess the card back talked about how it's staff with a magic jewel in it or something like that. I had no idea who Apocalypse was. As I've talked about, this toy line was my introduction to the X-Men as character. Apocalypse's action feature is that there, at several points in his body, he can extend, um, similar to the Masters of the Universe toy Extendar, to make him appear taller. But I seem to recall that the card back made it sound like the magic jewel itself was supposed to be what enabled him to grow to larger sizes. The staff has like a little lever on the side where you can make the jewel seem to grow. Yeah, I, the way that I interpreted that card back as an eight-year-old was that you were supposed to like use the jewel to kind of like push 
his body up uh, to make him extend, which all of which I have no idea where they got this jewel or where they got the staff from. I have not read all of the original X Factor runs. I'm not familiar with all of Apocalypse's early appearances, but he doesn't, to my knowledge, have any magic staff or magic jewel that fuels his powers. Well, clearly the factory just had a whole bunch of leftover Holiday Inn pins that didn't write, and they just threw them in with the toy because they needed to come up with something. He couldn't have nothing in his hands. It does look almost like a like a ballpoint pen. It's ridiculous. But I will also, I mean, it's also an imposing looking accessory, you know, like a, a, a staff, I think, befits a villain. I don't know. Uh, maybe we should talk about the figure itself. Yeah, I mean, he look, he's a classic apocalypse. I think that his silhouette is a little bit skinnier than uh, I would expect, than I would think when I call to mind what apocalypse looks like. But he actually looks a lot like the Walt Simonson drawings of Apocalypse, at least in the Fall of the Mutants storyline. I think that it's, I mean, given the limitations of mass market action figure in the early 90s, I think it's actually a pretty good like of Apocalypse. Yeah, for sure. He's not like, I mean, they're not pricing out like double-sized figures or anything at this point. So, I mean, as much as he can be scaled to the other characters, he looked about right. Yeah, there's some issues with scale, but in terms of his in, his proportions as a character himself, I think that they're spot on. It's pretty cool how they did bother to include the the wiring on his arm. Yeah, and it's not it wasn't wiring that was drawn on or sculpted on. It's actually separate tubes that uh, connected into his arms back. And it looks like it didn't really limit his flexibility. I mean, I think that at some point you would reach the end point of them as you were lifting his arms up, but that was well beyond what you would probably do while playing. It's not like he's doing toe touches all the time. Yeah, it wasn't double jointed. I, I never I never interpreted him as such. In the action feature, again, the action feature doesn't really interfere with the figure at all. Um, it doesn't limit his articulation in any way. You know, obviously when Apocalypse grows to gigantic sizes in the comics, he doesn't have like thin little tubes connecting the different parts of his body. But I think it's a, it's a pretty cool interpretation uh, or a pretty cool representation of his mutant power. Yeah, and you know, kids don't have to be so literal. They can imagine some stuff. No, exactly. I will say that he, his eyes, and, and this was true of the figure I had as well, they're, they're sort of like, I don't know what the word for that is, but his pupils are going in opposite directions. He's looking out for Wolverine on his left and Cyclops on his right, clearly. Well, he never met Wolverine at this point, but um, your point is taken. Just sort of tying back, like what's odd is, you know, Archangel was included in this toy line, but no mention of their connection here. Nothing about his pestilence war, like any of those. He just has a weapon system designed to destroy the X-Men. Right. I guess that that could be, I mean, they could have just made that up whole cloth, but he did have this fairly advanced celestial ship in the comics. So perhaps that's where they drew inspiration from. Angel's transformation into Archangel involves mutilation and attempted suicide and some other subject matter that's probably a little bit dark for a toy line targeting young children. But as we know, like later in the 90s, Toy Biz would be so thirsty for additional sales, they totally would have mentioned that. No, they totally would. Uh, And I'm excited for us to eventually get to some of those and talk about them. I think it's a cool looking figure. He's, he has a very striking character design. I think that it's represented fairly well in plastic form. As a kid, I liked the dark blue and the black. It, he like he stands out from the other characters. Looks like a villain. Today, I would say the A on his belt buckle is a little cheesy, but that was the character design from the comic. That was certainly nothing that bothered me when I was a child. Even though in the comics, I think his colors 
were a little bit lighter. I mean, he would have looked washed out as a character, like as a toy. And this way he really comes across as villainous with the dark blacks. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we go on to our next uh, <laughs> next villain? Kane Marco, the Juggernaut. Yeah, the Juggernaut, bitch! Incredibly strong, virtually invulnerable, and with a body almost bursting with evil mutant power. Juggernaut is the ultimate mutant battering ram. Juggernaut is unstoppable. He can smash his way through anything, even a mountain. His skin is so tough, not even Archangel's paralyzing darts can penetrate it. The only way to defeat him is to tear off his helmet and knock him out. Something that, thanks to his battering ram-like fists, is almost impossible. It was also impossible to remove the helmet of this action figure, so... He was undefeatable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because yeah, you can definitely see when you look at him, his face is really close on that mask. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I understand why they did this. Uh, and it bothers me that they describe him as a mutant because as anyone who knows the comic books knows, K. Marco is not a mutant. He gains his powers of to become the juggernaut from the Crimson gem of Cytorak, or Sidorak, I'm not really sure how it's pronounced, which is like an evil, chaotic death god. But I get, as I'm saying it out loud, maybe that also would have been a little bit much for a children's toy line. Well, I mean, and the fact that he's completely driven by rage against his brother, the leader of the X-Men, seems like something that you should definitely lead off, leave off the back. Yeah, and also Professor X wasn't even a toy in the toy line, so bringing up his vendetta against him would have just called attention to his absence, which I'm sure the <laughs> Playmakers did not want to do. So instead, they did, they did the tie-in they really should have done with Apocalypse and just brought up Archangel randomly. Yeah, and how useless uh, Archangel was. I also like that they talk about how, I love how they use the term penetrate uh, when talking about Archangel's missiles uh, versus the Juggernaut. Which honestly, those missiles aren't penetrating any of the bad guys because they're just sort of limply falling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, let's talk about the ultimate mutant battering ram, Juggernaut. I think that this is a really cool character design. This is, um, Juggernaut first appeared back during the Silver Age in one of the early issues of the of Uncanny X-Men. His costume has been tweaked over the years, um, but this, like the classic Juggernaut design, has changed very little in the past 50 years, and there's a reason for it. It's a great look for a supervillain. It's a really striking, interesting character design, I think, and it's it's recreated very faithfully in this toy, I would say. Yeah, I mean, they didn't just paint on those armbands. Those things are molded in there. Like, he could go straight from the toy shelves to giving blood, because those things are on quite firmly. He absolutely could. I guess they advertised the punch as his action feature. So he had a lever on the back and you, if you flicked it, he, one of his, I think just one of his arms, maybe both of his arms with punch, I can't remember. And then he also had these little wheels on uh, the bottoms of his feet. So you could kind of like push him along and he could do the battering ram thing. You know, both of those action features fit very well with the juggernaut. He certainly does punch a lot and neither of them really interfered that much with his playability. As I recall, you could or you could rotate the arms a little bit. Um, it would just change the starting point for the power punch. You know, I don't think you really need to do much more with Juggernaut's arms, like as a kid playing with him. Like he punches, that's what he does. That's basically it. He's not there to shake hands. No, certainly not. But what this means is his elbows and knees are not moving. Right. Um, so he does have more limited articulation in that way. But I mean, as a child, that never bothered me because again, like I probably wasn't thinking about it in a sophisticated way as I am now, but also 
it, he was able to do everything I wanted Juggernaut to do, which was basically just to, you know, charge the X-Men. And Rollerblade. And Rollerblade, yes. I, I just love that no one is left without an actual thing to hold in their hands. In this case, he's got this red battering ram. So, I mean, I understand they wanted to have an accessory, and uh, I'll give them credit. It, it actually has some paint on it, which is more than you would see in accessories for action figures of this time very often, but it makes no sense. It's this battering ram attachment that you can put on that I guess makes him, in the context of the character, makes no sense because he, he was able to like burst through anything he wanted to, but you know, they, they wanted to, to have something to put in the blister pack with the figure, so that's what we got. I mean, some days you don't want your forehead going straight into the wall when you're charging. So, like, it makes sense you might use that thing instead. I don't know. I mean, as a kid, I, like, I always had the thing on him. I believed them when they told me they needed it. But in <laughs> retrospect, I'm not so sure. And definitely looking at the picture drawn on the card back, he isn't depicted with that item. So perhaps this will be another car- another item that shows up in the forthcoming comic book series where all of these accessories are used. I would love to read that comic. I also, I, I mentioned, they, they talked about how his helmet needs to come off for him to be defeated. His first episode in the X-Men animated series, the action of the fight scene centers on the X-Men trying to get his helmet off. He does not have a removable helmet, and I'm actually glad that he doesn't. They've done many different Juggernaut figures since then, and several of them have included removable helmets or included the headpiece as a separate piece from the torso. And in my opinion, it really ruins the silhouette. Juggernaut's silhouette is like that sort of weird cone-shaped helmet that then just goes straight into his shirt. And this figure faithfully recreates that. Yeah, this is definitely a buff daddy with no neck. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I have one of those later Juggernauts, and we'll talk about it. I do like the removable helmet. But in this case, it is a classic look. I mean, like, he looks like he's, like, well, I guess one thing I'd say is, like, it's a very, like, like buff, stout-looking figure. Like, he looks like a powerhouse. If you put him next to the other figures in this wave, he would look like the strongest, so that's cool. I mean, he's he's definitely more solid than the rest of them. And he was heavy, too, if I remember. Like, he's, like, all that plastic. Well, then you definitely got your money's worth. Your $4.99. So, shall we move on to the leader of the bad guys? Yes, the, uh, the only member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who's actually was ever a member of that group. I think what you really are afraid of is me. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Okay, so we're talking about Magneto, of course. Or, as I called him when I was a child, Magneto. <laughs> That's interesting. They didn't include phonetic spellings on the back, I understand. No, it didn't. It was, and there was a, a letter written into Wizard Magazine that finally explained to me how to say his name, which is strange because I must have seen the cartoon by then, but I guess that didn't, it didn't really sink in then. Uh, I, I guess I didn't trust the cartoon. Anyway, here's the bio. The evil mutant master of magnetism, Magneto is the arch enemy of the X-Men. With his magnetic power, Magneto's magnetic force can pull even the heaviest objects to him throw them miles away, or cause them to shatter with sudden explosiveness. Magneto plans to enslave mankind and mercilessly rule Earth with the other evil mutants. But first, he must destroy the X-Men, the superhero mutants who are mankind's defenders. That sounds like it was written by (laughs) Senator Kelly. (laughs) It is, uh, that is an epic bio. I remember when I was a child, again, this this toy line was my introduction to the X-Men, and I remember thinking 
not that many things are magnetic. Um, it seems like it would be in some ways a limited power, but as is hinted at by this bio in the Marvel universe as depicted in the comic books and now also film series and the cartoon series, magnetism can do a lot of things that you never would have guessed. Atoms, they have, you know, magnetic properties. Right? <laughs> that's true. Protons and <laughs> neutrons. And electrons. So perhaps that's what Magneto was actually manipulating when he when he was manipulating all of that, all those metals that were not magnetic. As the toy is depicted, yeah. Like, I was like, is he flying over a junkyard and pulling all this stuff onto him? <laughs> like, I really don't know. I think Bio sets up this diabolical mastermind, Archenemy of the X-Men, and we can talk about how faithfully the figure fulfills that promise that, <laughs> that the Bio <laughs> sets up. I mean, I, I liked this figure when I was a kid. Uh, in retrospect, I don't know how well it holds up. The fact that Magneto's accessories are bits of space junk that can magnetically attach to him, I think was kind of a cool idea probably at the time, but in retrospect, it's kind of weird. He definitely looks like he flew down and attacked my mom's Aerostar at the pick and save parking lot and just pulled oh. all the gears out of it. <laughs> and then he yeah. attached some to his chest. Magneto isn't usually like making magnetic things adhere to him. So that was unusual. There's a couple of things about this figure that are interesting. The first is that the helmet is removable. I don't know why they did that. I loved that. This was one I had and it was a perfect pairing to my Wolverine ring. I had a Magneto thimble. Both hands could have an X-Men character on them. Amazing. I think like miraculously, I don't think I ever lost the helmet. Would have been definitely a danger. Usually those accessories got lost pretty fast. In most depictions of Magneto, his helmet protects him from telepathy and thus protects him from Professor Xavier, his arch enemy. In this wave of the toy line, there are no telepaths on the X-Men team and they don't make reference to that in the bio. And I don't even know that they had done that many stories because at this point in time, Magneto had been an ally of the X-Men for quite some time. I would not be surprised to learn that Magneto's helmet was always resistant to telepathy, but that was certainly not something that I, I thought of at the time. It's nice that you could take the helmet off because then you can see him frowning fully. <laughs> it it's a little bit oversized on the toy, but like it sort of makes sense, especially like later when you came to watch the animated series. I think this was a wise choice. Yeah, no, I mean, it is a cool choice. It, it, it does make for a more dynamic figure, although it does also make for a helmet that's a little bit bigger than it should be. He also is the only character in this wave, and I think maybe the only character in the series who has a cloth goods cape, which I mean, at the time that was very common for action figures. I had several, I had Batman and Robin, they had cloth capes and this is like, he has that same kind of design. It's an interesting shade of lavender though. It is, it's a very, it's a very pastel cape. It's a bridesmaid color, <laughs> not a bad guy color. It's also a very thin cape. The drawing of him on the card back has his cape stretched out rather imposingly and that was not something that this cloth cape could do. Uh, I think I usually play with him without the cape, if I remember correctly. I just Me too. He was a lot more embarrassing if he was wearing that sad-looking cape. <laughs> with that purple cape on, he's not someone who's going to enslave humankind. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about this figure is that he has this purple piece that comes down from the collar on his costume that was not true to the comics. I mean, even as a kid, not knowing this stuff, I could see from the card back and 
you know, maybe from the trading card that came with it, that was not supposed to be there. So that bothered me. You know, for some reason, I feel like I've seen that before in the comics, like the very earliest ones. I mean, it wasn't like a huge problem. I, for some reason, as a child, I thought that that was there so that it could be the magnetic piece that his space junk attached to. And he's also, you know, ready for battle because he's got both of his hands are karate chopping. Yes, well, they have to be so that he can reveal the magnets embedded in his palms that can <laughs> allow the space junk to attach to him. I, I didn't, that didn't bother me as a kid, and especially not now, because I think of Magneto sort of like flying around and like, you know, waving his hands, sort of like menacingly. Like, if not, someone's like going up and punching the X-Men. He's yeah. doing all this fighting from distance. It's pretty good. It's pretty faithful. It's its classic look basically, to me. I mean, I think it does the job. It's pretty much in proportion with the other figures. You know, I believed them when they told me that he was their most fearsome foe. I mean, it it doesn't ruminate too much on that he might be a conflicted villain or have anything other than a completely evil perspective of the world. That's fine. It was 91. Yeah, that kind of like moral grayness just wasn't something that I think that they were willing to introduce in wave one. You know, it was also, we were just coming out of the Cold War. It was a different time in American culture. They wanted their toy line staff heroes and villains. That moral clarity is really a breath of fresh air. They probably weren't ready to start talking about how he was a Holocaust survivor in their like three sentence blurb that would convince kids to buy the action figure. Honestly, then at that point, if you've been playing with it for two years and then later you find out about it, it's a little bit shocking. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it was. Part of what makes the X-Men such compelling characters is that many of their villains aren't just mustache twirling bad guys. Except for these toys. These are all mustache twirling toys. These are uh, an entry point for the, the more rich stories that you could read about in the comics. Those were the three villains. Andy, you can't talk about Magneto without talking about his car. I mean, that Magneto, he's just got some space junk. But when he hops into his Magnetron car, which you also could have purchased separately, there's really a chance that he could defeat the X-Men. Well, and I'd like to learn more about this car, so maybe you could read the car's bio for us. The evil mutant master of magnetism, Magneto, is the archenemy of the X-Men. With his sleek and shiny Magnetron, Magneto can fire metallic discs at his enemies, the mutant superheroes. Hidden magnets on the nose and fenders can transport metallic space junk while double-sided swipers sweep the ground, collecting metal debris not included. Freewheeling action helps propel Magneto into battle against the forces of good. This was such a strange, strange toy. But you know what? The the picture on the front is faithful to the toy and what it would look like with him in the Magnetron, because it's got that weird block on the front of his costume. No, it it definitely does. So I mean, I think about it like this. So the um, the Ninja Turtles toy line, I know, which I talk about a lot, and I know you always cringe when I do, had a ton of vehicles and play sets and things like this. And some of them like really were very only like loosely tied to the concept of the turtles. But you know, many of them were great, and I, they probably um, you know they always went for more money. I don't know if they were more profitable for the toy company, but I'm sure they were you know just like something else to sell. So I can see why in Wave One. They tried this for the X-Men toy line. You know, I don't know how well these sold. That's beyond the purview of our podcast. I can't imagine a lot of people were clamoring to get Magneto's Magnetron. But I also will say that I owned it. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Can you please tell us about the experience of owning the Magnetron? So it was, I remember it was actually like an Easter gift. But I mean, this was a gift I received for Easter. This past Easter? Probably 1992, I would imagine. Oh, okay. 1991. 
it would have been a much better Easter this year if I had gotten this. So, yeah, it's so weird. It's like a little roadster that fits Magneto. And, you know, of course, Magneto can fly. So why would he be driving around in a car? And again, it, it sort of sets up the, like, as if one of the characters, like one of like, the sort of primary things Magneto does when he's preparing to battle the X-Men is like collect magnetic junk so that he can throw it at them. It has like, it really like leans into the magnet theme. There's a little like horseshoe shaped magnet on the dashboard in front of him. There's another one behind the, uh, the chair that he sits in, the driver's seat. It, um, it did have a bunch of magnets on it so you could attach his space junk to it. And it came with this like magnetic disc that you could, that, and like there was like a, a, a catapult mechanism so you could throw it at the X-Men, I guess. And I mean, I'm imagining if it had actual magnets on it, you could also use it as a paperclip holder or something else <laughs> very practical. You could. Well, then it had these like little like sort of fins that came out of the sides that would sweep the ground for, for, for metal debris, which is you know, something that Magneto is always doing. He's <laughs> trying to get more metal debris. And uh, yeah, that would, that would pick up paper clips. You, you better believe it. I wish you would drive up and down my block because they haven't done it since this quarantine started and it looks really bad out there. Yeah, well, you know, maybe like in his more, um, one of his more heroic periods, that could be a service that you could do <laughs> for communities. You could team up with the Department of Water and Power and just like help us all. But also, I mean, like, I just, it makes me think about like what could have been, like what if each villain would have their own, <laughs> their own vehicle in this, in this toy line. It could have been great. Honestly, I feel like Apocalypse calls out more for a vehicle than Magneto does. I mean, this is an interesting look. I, like, I have to feel like when you're designing things like this for a toy, like they're wonderful because since it's super fake and you have nothing else to compare it to, you can just make it the easiest way possible. Like you don't have to try to be faithful to a character design. And so that has to be what the allure of making vehicles like this. No, that's a really good point. And I wonder... Yeah, I mean, it's also, like, I, I don't know that Toy Biz ever did this, but it's the kind of thing where you could probably take something like this that's, like, fairly generic with, like, a, with a couple of Magneto-specific flourishes and, you know, reuse it for another toy line down the road. I'm sure they were thinking they could repaint this and turn it into Sabretooth's Savage, like, fighter vehicle later oh. with some orange and yellow. Um, I think that, like, you know, we haven't yet talked about non-essential parts of the toy line. And, of course, like, you know, what part of the toy line is essential. But I will say that this accessory is, this this vehicle is definitely non-essential. <laughs> you, you did not need this to recreate any scenes from the X-Men comics or cartoon. As Chris Claremont right now is working on the storyline for that other comic series, like, I know that the Magnetron will be essential. I, I, I look forward to reading about the Magneto getting this Magnetron alongside Juggernaut with his battering ram and them getting ready to really go take on the X-Men. <laughs> I can't wait. How about the other vehicle? So the other vehicle, I, I'm going to say, feels more essential to me. The Wolverine Mutant Cycle. This vehicle also has a bio, so I will read it. Already the X-Men's greatest fighter, Wolverine is even more powerful with his three-wheeling mutant cycle. 
Retractable claws and pop wheelie action speed him into battle. A power pedal activates a transformable, ferocious face as Wolverine charges into the fight against the evil mutant. There's so much to talk about with this, with this mutant cycle, which is basically a motorcycle, though I guess it has a third. It's really a tricycle, actually. That way it can uh, tip over. Probably prudent for a toy that doesn't actually, isn't actually going to go highway speeds. Um, the colors match his costume. That's very, um, very good of Wolvie. Very much branded a Wolverine mutant cycle. It has the retractable claws that echo his retractable claws. It also, we can't see it in this photo, but that weird little tooth thing. I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going with this. Actually can transform (laughs) into a representation of Wolverine's unmasked face. Which so weird. It's so bizarre. This might have been the bridge too far for this toy. <laughs> I think they really had me like I was like, you know, this is a great toy until I saw the picture of this. I did not have this. I don't think I even knew anyone who did. You oh. could um, set it so that the, the Logan face is not facing out and just forget that that's even there. That aspect of it is really strange. It sort of makes Wolverine, Logan likes his motorcycles. He's very butch like that. And he likes, you know, claw motifs. So I can allow that he might include claws on his motorcycle that he's painted to match his costume. I don't (laughs) see Wolverine as like putting a weirdly, you know, skewed version of his face on the front of his own motorcycle. Like compressed, it's so strange. It is. And when I looked at it, the first thought I had was that this is clearly foreshadowing Bruce Davidson's almost Oscar-nominated performance as Senator Kelly in the 2000 film X-Men. Because it really looks like that scene where he's trying to push his face <laughs> through the bars. Yes, as he as he's already been transformed into some sort of globular mutant. Also, like as I'm looking at this picture of the motorcycle, it occurs to me that the way that the Wolverine action figure was sculpted, he couldn't actually hold on to those handlebars, could he? You know, Logan's a a bad boy. He doesn't need to hold onto the handlebars. He's also not wearing a helmet. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, the ring can double as a helmet. (laughs) I guess. Well, he does have that healing factor. This also (laughs) happened. I wonder if, like, a friend did have this. If I did, like, see it once or twice. I do remember the wheelie popping action. Oh, I like this. When it describes describes the action, it says, push down the power pedal to transform mutant cycle from mild-mannered to ferocious. So, so I guess, like, he's wearing, he has, like, the Logan face out when he's just sort of, like, going around town. <laughs> and then he transforms it to the ferocious face when it's time to battle some evil mutants. It's nice that he has his face on it, because when you, like, park it at 7-Eleven... And there's a whole bunch of other burgundy and gold <laughs> motorcycles. It probably deterred theft, I would imagine. I mean, and it's so much more straightforward than like a Perot bumper sticker or something else like that, which might have made sense around the time period. Yeah, I, you think that Wolverine would have voted for Perot? Huh, who knows? <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, the inclusion of the Wolverine mutant cycle and then the bio really sets up Wolverine to be the most popular X-Men. Which, like, can we talk about that for a second? Because they must have had a sense that Wolverine would be the most popular, but like they just chose two to give vehicles to. They could have really chosen anyone. Imagine like if we could go back in time like Bishop and instead make this Nightcrawler's motorcycle, what would life be like now? 
Or what if we, instead of having a motorcycle, we'd had Storm's weather balloon? You <laughs> 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 think about how, like, the, the X-Men's answer to the Ninja Turtles uh, turtle blimp. It could have been <laughs> so awesome. For some reason, I think if we had gotten a weather balloon, there hadn't, would have never been an animated series. Like, I just... <laughs> In that, in that timeline, the X-Men were canceled across all the <laughs> platforms in 1991. Though yeah, it actually so, would have been cool because they could have came with actual balloons you attached to, like, a plastic bucket. Yeah, <laughs> I'm envisioning, like, it would, I'm calling it a weather balloon, but it would be a hot air balloon. And Storm would just, if it was, like, a little basket that she could stand in, that would get around the fact that, like, that figure could not sit. She could have just stood in the basket, like, you know, <laughs> brandished her lightning bolts. I hope that Hasbro is listening, because I will actually buy one of your toys if you make this. Your move, Hasbro. It's interesting. I think at the time Wolverine was not nearly as popular as he would become. In 1991, he, he'd already had his, his own miniseries. I think he'd already, had, he'd already had an ongoing monthly comic book as well. Uh, it looks like the limited series started in 82, so he had a, almost a decade of popularity behind him at this point. And I guess they, you know, they knew that he would be the most popular character. And of course they were, they, you know, they pushed him in the cartoon and in the movie series. Well, I just imagine if that like North Carolina based designer had instead chosen to like push Rogue on us, like out of a sense of solidarity for the Southern accent that we could have had a lot of different things happen. It could have been a better world for sure. Are we going to talk about the play sets as well? We should talk about the play sets, however briefly. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I actually, I had both of them. and I don't think it was that expensive. It was no, there were play sets. They were like the size of like a little room for the figure as opposed to something like, you know, like, like Castle Grayskull from the He-Man line that was like really like a pretty large hunk of plastic. And I like that they were at that price point because, you know, we never got that Castle Grayskull or any of the other huge ones, but at $10, you could stretch for it like it wasn't it was not an impulse buy at the time but it was like enough that they had a place to hone their mutant skills no totally it wasn't it wasn't like this like super big expensive thing and also i thought i think the idea of making these like little like sort of danger room modules for each character was a pretty cool one i just wish they had kept doing it yeah i do you remember if they like if there was a way to like connect them if i recall they were supposed to so the Cyclops one, as you look at it, on the right side, it was open. And I know that the Wolverine one punched out the wall on the left side. So I got the feeling like they connected that way. Yeah, I, that, that makes sense. I can't remember. I know that sometimes they would have, like, toys like this would have, like, a little, like, plate with pegs that you could, like, put under it that would, like, make them physically connect. I can't remember if these had that or not. Well, when you use your imagination, anything's possible, Andy. Well, I did definitely put them side by side as a kid and, you know, and had Wolverine and Cyclops, you know, training side by side, honing their mutant powers in the danger room. Let's talk about Cyclops first, because it's been a while since we've heard from Scott. Energy blast, huh? Here's one from a pro. Like, you could just stick this figure onto the, onto the base that, like, sort of hinged on an axis. And the cool thing was, you know, his feature, you press the button and his eyes would light up but the button would nest, it could, in theory, nest inside that trigger that you would press to activate features on this so that his eyes would light up and he would like cause things to happen on the, on the play set. No, it was, it was really smart, it was really cool. And there were three different targets you could pick. One was a cutout of Magneto, 
<laughs> which makes sense because like in the danger room they're gonna have to have like standees of their bad guys so they're like oh it's the bad guy exactly and then there's also a large um like cinder block that he could split into two and then a wall that he could disintegrate um and even though the toy hinted at him making his beams as wide as a you know football field in this case he could only really knock over what he was pacing <laughs> yeah well i mean he i think that this training session was really more about honing his accuracy as opposed to just you know letting it all out because that would be dangerous in a combat situation with civilians present exactly looking at the packaging obviously the colors match the colors of the card backs but it still also repeats the same characters in the upper left hand corner that's pretty cool no it is very cool and shall we talk about the wolverine combat cave please tell me all about it because i never got to physically touch this specimen it was really cool. So it was, I mean, it's like this similar um, room-sized um, playset, And there was, you know, and all of the obstacles that Wolverine faced were designed to help him train his specific mutant powers, of course. So this, this weird sort of like, it looked like the torture bot from Star Wars A New Hope. Um, this big, like, robotic thing that has various arms implements that look dangerous. Um, there's also a wall that Wolverine could slash, slash through, and then Wolverine also has his a representation of Magneto uh, that he could cut a hole in the middle of, which is a little bit violent um, because it, it suggests that Magneto was, I'm sorry, that Wolverine was training to cut Magneto across the stomach, which would disembowel him. But he was a dangerous, evil mutant, and I guess Wolverine was ready. Wolverine was ready to do whatever it took. What made this really cool is um, you can see in the picture on the front of the playset there you like you put Wolverine on this little platform and then there was like a little joystick that you could use that would make him move up and down a track within the playset and then you could also swivel the joystick to make him swivel around. As a kid, I loved that. I thought it was so cool. Like you could actually like make Wolverine like sort of go from station to station and. Um, you know, attack the robot and the wall and Magneto. It was a really neat idea. I think that as I'm talking about one of the drawbacks that I see to these play sets is that they don't really provide a setting. I mean, like when I think about like when I was, you know, when I was eight, like I played with my action figures and they didn't really like provide a setting for like the figures to interact with each other. Like I would love to have like a war room or, you know, like the, the war room in the cartoon or something like that. You can only like put one figure in there at a time. That's the one. That's the one drawback that I would say for sure. And Toy Biz wasn't on their game because they know if you make it large enough for two figures, people have to buy two figures. No, exactly. Although, again, like I mean, getting back to your point, the 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 fact that it's like a relatively self-contained place that is really cool because it means that you can have a lot of fun with it with just the like this one. You can have a lot of fun with with just the Wolverine toy. Exactly. That was pretty cool. So now is when we usually talk about. Um, extras or like wishes and I think we sort of talked extensively about that weather balloon toy that definitely was a missed opportunity (laughs) it's definitely a missed opportunity it's definitely going to be on my wish list at least as far as villain characters go there's got to be some that we think probably should have been included yeah so it's hard for me to be able to talk about who else should have been included because again like this was my introduction to the x-men and so you know I believed the toy line that Magneto, Apocalypse, and Juggernaut were the three most important X-Men villains. In retrospect, I think it's a I think that all of those are really solid choices. 
Magneto at that time, you know, Magneto first appeared in the first X-Men comic. He had been a major character throughout the history of the X-Men. He would be the villain of X-Men number one, um, X-Men volume two, number one, which launched in 1991. So uh, he needed to be included, I think, no question. Juggernaut was also a villain who had first appeared in the Silver Age and had been represented in the comics very consistently throughout the X-Men's history. Apocalypse was the newest character who was included, but at this point he had already established himself as really the only arch enemy and the only, probably the only memorable villain that the original X Factor fought. I mean, there were some others, but probably no one who is nearly as famous as Apocalypse. I, I think they all make sense. At the time, I knew Wolverine and Sabretooth were bad. But like, they, they, those two fought a lot. So if, if anything, I would have put Sabretooth in wave one. No, that's a really good point. Sabretooth was, I think by this point, had been established as Wolverine's arch nemesis, so he definitely could have had a spot there. But would you have, if you only had nine figures, three villains, who would you have replaced Sabretooth? Um, who would you have um, removed to make a space for Sabretooth? I probably would have removed um, Apocalypse, because I think it's like worth building up to him. But if you're just looking at them all on a line, and you have colors to deal with, I would actually remove Juggernaut, because Sabretooth colors, color family is more like Juggernaut. Sabretooth is more of the caliber of vil- a villain that Juggernaut is, as opposed to Apocalypse. I mean, Apocalypse is a villain who can threaten the entire world. Juggernaut, you know, robs banks and <laughs> destroys the X-Mansion from time to time, but he's not a global threat. Sabretooth is really terrible. He's a serial killer, but he's not going to, he doesn't have the um, ability or the mental capacity to really <laughs> threaten the entire I mean, it's true. Yeah. That's, that's not the scale he operates on. It sounds like you liked all of the... I mean, choices. yeah, the other, like, the other characters that they could have put in at this time, Mr. Sinister was the big bad of Inferno. And he was still very new, though. He was still very new, but he was not that much newer than Apocalypse. He was also behind the Marauders, who were the big bads of the mutant massacre and who really like drove the X-Men um, storyline as like the primary antagonists. They were really high on the X-Men's list of, you know, biggest villains for quite some time. So I could see including Mr. Sinister potentially if there were space for another, um, another villain who maybe like wasn't at that like big bad level, they could have included one of the Marauders potentially. Most X-Men fans know who the Marauders are but couldn't necessarily tell you a whole lot about the individual numbers. I, 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 I'm talking in circles, but I think maybe Mr. Sinister would have been another contender. I think that they probably chose the right three villains to include. At this point, for all I knew, they were only going to get like two lines, so you need to have those. And obviously, I don't think Sinyaka was even around at this point. He wasn't, I don't think, because the Acolytes didn't debut until X-Men Volume 2, number one. Yeah, so um, he couldn't have been there, but I mean, there's... We'll, we'll cover this in wave two, but so I don't know why it took so long for him to show up. You know, you bring up a good point. They want to save enough major characters that can be sort of like the headliners for subsequent waves. I'm sure they were like holding Senyaka back as like their ace up their sleeve for future waves. Um, speaking of aces up their sleeves, um, we need to give this wave uh, a snick rating. Uh, I think it's snicket. Snicket. What's the snicket? 
what's the Snicket on the Wolverine for this wave? Well, let's talk about the Snicket scale, I guess. For those of you who continue to listen to these uh, episodes, and I hope that all of you do, you'll find that in every single wave we're going to talk about a Wolverine toy because Wolverine was so popular, and I they probably figured that his toys would sell, and they probably were right. So each wave includes, I think, at least one Wolverine, and... And I blame all you basics for keeping on buying those Wolverines that I couldn't get, like, a Rogue or a Jean Grey forever. No, exactly. Like, how many Wolverines did you need? (laughs) He's not that interesting a character. I said it. Okay. Uh, Can't wait for the hate mail we're going to get from that. So the Snicket scale is the scale that we're going to use to rate how superfluous the Wolverine figure seems to us. And I think we decided that it's going to be one to five Snickets and like five is like just totally superfluous. Like we're really reaching just to create a Wolverine. Is that what we're going to do? You know, I think you just have to follow your heart because if you explain the scale too much, it's just going to turn into math. Okay. I'm going to say that this Wolverine gets one Snicket. He rates low because he's not at all superfluous. I think that like the Wolverine to me seems like it's, you know, one of his iconic costumes. It's the first Wolverine that we get. I think it feels pretty necessary. I agree. This Wolverine gets one second. But what about his mutant cycle? I was just about to go there. I think the mutant cycle gets a solid 3.5 snickets. I was gonna go three as well, because I mean, he needs a motorcycle. You know, I think that the mutant cycle loses points for, for being a mutant cycle and having it, it being so so uh, on the nose in terms of his Wolverine branding. Um, which we know kids can't um, handle anything other than on the nose. We, we relied on a bunch of different sources to um, help us prepare for this episode, and we want to acknowledge them and thank them. Yeah, I again use the pictures from Figure Realm, which are awesome, front and back of the covers, including the uh, the vehicles. That's very useful. I know we both, I think we both used um, that Pixel Dan toy explosion, or is it toy explosion? Um, it's on Pixel Dan's YouTube channel, and he has this great retrospective of the entire first wave that really highlights the figures and lets you see their action features and how they worked. Um, he does a great job of explaining them, so definitely check that out. I feel like Toy Biz tried to hide this from everyone, so a lot of the marketing material on the mutant cycle, it was hard to find a picture of of with Wolverine's face showing, and a random Etsy seller had a picture with it out, which is what I use as my reference. Uh, amazing. Um, I also, again, want to like, acknowledge the Real Gentleman of Leisure. Uh, it's a website that includes, um, that has a bunch of X-Men comic reviews, and then also reviews some of the, it reviews the action figures as well as the trading cards and things of that name. It's a very cool website. Well, uh, until next time, when we cover wave two, where the um, real heroes show up. Yeah, I mean, wave two is when things start to get interesting. So uh, I hope you'll join us again. So until Cyclops gets a mutant Volvo with a real Scott Summers face, make mine toy facts. <laughs>